the thing I was really grateful for was when I was working with HPG and particularly the consultants is mm. that they looked at me as a whole person and they were like, wow, this is amazing. Like you've got all these different amazing skills. I'm going to put forward this really left of field job that you've probably never even thought of, yes. but it's combining all these interest areas that you have, um, which I really appreciated. Welcome back to another episode of HBG Engage the Podcast. I have the pleasure of sitting with Zoe Callister Haeckel today. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Zoe is um, a general manager for Doctors on Call. Um, she'll give you a little bit of a background on what um, that is and who they are. She's also the editor, Australian editor, mm-hmm. for the Innovation and Impact Scientific Technology Business Journal. Yes. A mouthful. Yes. Um, and she also, on our podcast, but she's also a podcast producer and host um, at Beyond the Medicine Cabinet podcast. Yep. That's Absolutely. the one. Um, but firstly, before we start in, I like to just, if people have any kind of social media platforms that they use for their, for example, your podcast or for your editing, I like to give people the opportunity to kind of just tell them where they can find that before we go into the main conversation yeah so most of my social media stuff i do on my linkedin okay that's my area um but otherwise you can find the podcast on listener and find it anywhere you get your podcasts apple amazon spotify yeah all the places but go to listener to listen to it though yes because it is a listener podcast it is a listener podcast (laughs) just plug that for you there yeah (laughs) yeah um awesome so the one of the main reasons why we wanted to talk to you is one you've been going through the recruitment process here at hpg but also your your resume is is very interesting um your education is one that's very interesting you've done quite a bit um, and also your your experience within health the healthcare space again very very interesting so zoe's going to give us a bit of detail into all of that um but you started off at university studying a bachelor of medical science yes why was that well what i really was, what was the idea behind that i think i really wanted to actually do medicine mm-hmm. and wanted to become a doctor so um, I thought Bachelor of Medical Science, Sydney University, that'll set me up really well. I'll be able to go straight into post-grad med, no worries. Um, and I think the reason why I wanted to do medicine was because uh, my family's medical. So we've been in medicine for, you know, ages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so very much a part of growing up and that idea of altruism and, and serving other people and mm very much ingrained in my DNA, I suppose, and and giving back. Mm. Um, Spent a lot of time amongst vulnerable communities um, and just thought, yeah, definitely that's where I want to go. And I also think it's a bit of in school. There's very much distinct pathways. It's either you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to go do business, or you're going to go be a doctor, basically. And, um, yeah, so for me that was medicine and um from there Mm -hmm. i decided that i would study a master's of international public health because i realized that there was a lot that i didn't really know about the world and and the health issues Mm -hmm. that are so relevant to us um and i went overseas for a little bit spent some time in south africa and and i think that really did open my eyes as well um that experience so 
really loved and enjoyed that. Thought that it, that would really put me in good stead to go do medicine. Kept studying for the GAMSAT, kept trying. Yeah. Um, didn't quite make it yet. So then I was like, okay, well, there's all these vulnerable communities. Um, I may as well get some knowledge on how to look at that from a legal perspective. Yeah. So I went and did a Masters of Health Law at UCID again. Back to you, Sid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm back. Yeah, I'm back. Hi. <laughs> um, and thought that the legal framework would be a really interesting way to really frame, you know, the responsibilities of health professionals mm. and, and the rights of patients in that space and, and allied health professionals as well. Um, yeah. And then I also became really interested in neuroscience as well and, and, um, and decided whilst I was, oh, sorry. I kind of did some time in a, in a law firm in, in personal injury, but then decided, wasn't you know, it wasn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, um, I'm really interested in neuroscience. Um, how about I go do some psychology? So I went to Macquarie University this time and started my Bachelor of Psych um, honours, enrolled, but I didn't graduate with a Bachelor of Psych honours. I, I okay. graduated with a Bachelor of Science Psychology because I didn't do my honours yet in the okay, end. So that's kind of how that happened. Um, but yeah, so loved it, became super involved with the cognitive science department, went and looked at brain health in high contact sports players. So um, looking at, you know, concussion and, and how that happens. And and then we had this opportunity from Emotive who actually has their building on the Macquarie University campus to mm -hmm. validate a new product um, called a, an EG mo Emotive um, device where you put it sort of on someone's head and it's got all these little electrodes that you can measure their brain activity. So we did a whole, I guess, scientific exploration around this. So I was sitting on the sidelines pulling off um, AFL players. Yeah, I was going to ask you, was it would have been AFL players you'd have yeah. been dealing with? Because the whole concussion, is it CTE? Yeah. Yeah, that's quite massive in, in the United States, obviously with within yeah. American football because a lot of their tackling is done with their heads in yeah. helmets. So, and obviously in the States, much like here, whenever kids choose a sport, they're playing it from they're six years old. Yeah. So it's just, and even at six, they're running to each other's heads um, um, or running to each other with their heads. So the whole concussion thing is definitely something that's been brought to light probably over the past, say, 50 years because no one really understood why yeah. players after they retire go a little bit crazy and they become physically abusive towards their partners and their children and they couldn't understand because they weren't like that while they were playing so why now that they've retired they've kind of lost it and then through the research just started to realize that it's it's been the, the 20 to 30 years of playing a sport that's kind of yeah kind of messed up their brain a little bit absolutely and i think there's so much we still don't know in this area of research as well so it's really exciting to be doing something practical because like you mentioned i remember sitting going to a seminar or a conference i think it was um with the brain bank that had just been sort of linked with the cte and they decided um, a whole bunch of high-profile players were going to donate their brains to the brain bank. Um, and this, After they passed? Yeah, after they passed. Okay. And so we heard some ex-players speak on this panel and some of the doctors that had treated them. And it was really sad because they were recounting stories of, you know, how they felt at the top of their game and they were, um, you know, really active and, and, and cognitively with it for their whole lives. And then they get to this point where... 
they start to develop memory issues and um, aggressive behaviours start mm. to come out, which if you ask their spouses, it's something that was never... A thing. Yeah, really, in their relationship. Yeah. And it's really, from the spouse perspective, it's really sad to watch a loved one transform in front of their eyes. But um, particularly this one story of a player who had lived in his house for 20 years and he described one day standing in the bathroom and not remembering how to open the door or which way that the handle or, or just being really confused mm. um, and having these moments of lucidity and then going back into, you know, brain fog. Um, it's really scary of for these would, people. Would yeah. And I feel like, you know, um, there's not a lot of culture in the sport to sort of go off and sort of take a break if you mm. have had some sort of head injury or, or head collision. Um, you may not necessarily know if it's a concussion when you get, you know, um, briefly pulled off the field. Um, I think there definitely needs to be a cultural shift to support that, to say it's okay, like you can take a break for the rest of the game um, because it's for your long-term health, particularly your mental health, much better decision in most for instances. Sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and this, the thing that you brought up about small kids, that was something that really um, resonated with me a lot because mm. I was noticing that these young kids, as young as you know, four or five years of age, are going to play um, and having these injuries. I think there's certain rules now. You know, even in soccer, we're not allowed to headbutt yeah. the ball <laughs> from a certain age, yeah. but still you know, accidents do happen where they can sustain an injury. And for kids, that's like a whole other level of issues from a young age. It's like you're going into school and you may, you may be sitting there and not able to concentrate because you've got that brain fog from, you know, a concussion, concussion. that you didn't realise that you had on the weekend. And also the really hard thing about concussion is that you don't know. Um, there's no criteria that's solid enough for you to say, for yes, to say you yes, definitely. You mm. Yeah. You can have a head knock as well and still experience those um, symptoms. Um, and that can transform into difficulty in learning. That's just something that I really loved and was so passionate about. And for the first time, realized that research could be super impactful and super meaningful and, and hands-on. And so we were using this amazing device to test players and their brain health and then comparing it to the gold standard EEG that you yeah. would have in a lab, which costs about, you know, $90,000. This was amazing because this device costs $1,500. So oh. we were saying, I guess the whole thing behind it was if you could use this device to make any informed choices around potentially diagnosing concussion um, and it was accessible financially, it could really change the sport and could yeah. really change the experiences of the players in the sport. Um, yeah, so through that, I think I became quite a... Uh, an avid, um, not proponent, what's the word when you, advocate, mm -hmm. advocate. So one day I actually went up to Peter Fitzsimons in a cafe at Mossman because I knew that he sat there and wrote yeah. his book and I just started chatting to him and I was like, this is really cool. This is what we're doing at Macquarie. You know, it would be really great if you could put an article in, in, in your column. So he did, he wrote an article. Oh, yep. And nice. he was um, happy to do that. And then through that, we got um, some coverage with the Channel 7 News. And I even reached out to the ABC and was able to secure a slot on the ABC to, um, you know, talk about the research we were doing. Um, all from this, this perspective that if you can get 
more exposure to the problem, particularly in research. You can get more funding, get more government grants, and then you can do more, um, which I think is really important. So everyone would always joke that I was like the salesperson on the research team. (laughs) Sometimes you need that. Yeah, and I think particularly for researchers as well because they're so amazing and they've got these amazing brains, but sometimes I think they get a little bit... um, shy or maybe unsure of sort of putting it out there in a way that is commercial for them to then um, beneficially get more support Um, so I I took that on as like a little challenge and I was like side hustle yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna help this happen and I'm gonna tell the story and um, yeah help this a little bit so yes I loved that Um, found my way into doing doctors on call um, and decided Again, education-wise, because of all the all the things I had to do with that, I probably should go do an MBA because I had no formal business training or understanding of some of the processes that I had to implement. So that's my really long explanation of my background <laughs> and education. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, so you kind of just you just mentioned doctors and call there, yeah. which you currently work for, and you've been with them since 2015. Yeah. Um, but just to start off, can you explain exactly what doctors on call? Is yeah. yeah, cool. So, Doctors on Call is a really amazing initiative. It's um, basically the mission is to provide healthcare to people in their homes. So, if that means bringing in pathology or mobile X-rays or doctors or allied health professionals, it's all about bringing it all to the patient, and that can be through virtual care or mm. it can be physically, where we send doctors in. Um, to treat patients and generally we focus on those who are um, either cognitively um, less able-bodied to to move around as freely as from a day-to-day aspect yeah absolutely that's it Um, so we try and so we've done a little bit of work with the Cerebral Palsy Alliance we've done a little bit of work um, mostly in actually aged care we've done a little bit of work with um, Housing Commission Australia Um, sorry, Mission Australia in Housing Commission Mm. um, to make sure that everyone tries to have access to our services. Um, So our clinical team is amazing um, and they work tirelessly and they worked tirelessly all throughout COVID to make sure this has happened. Yeah, Yeah. Um, But it's a big job. It's a really big thing and particularly in the current, you know, background of a crisis of COVID mm-hmm. um, it's not easy. Is it all over Australia at the moment or is it mainly New mainly South New, South Wales. Wales. New South Wales? We've been yeah. asked to go into other states. Other states okay. But we just have to work out uh, that's a whole other logistic yeah. you know thing of that course. has to happen um, but we don't really have any plans mm. for that anytime soon. Yeah. Um, you probably got to make it almost perfect here before you can then almost expand yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah you got to master it. Yeah. That's it. And you don't want to be sort of overstretching yourself and providing subpar care to someone. 100%. I agree with that. Because you want volume, you know. Um, I think that's sometimes where people can fall down or or businesses can sort of come apart in healthcare. Yeah. They scale too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we've been really mindful of that and we've been really careful with the way that we've built it even when I first sort of came into my full-time role because I wasn't full-time in 2015 I was working part-time just sort of doing admin and outreach and support and and all that sort of stuff and just you know some financial billing and um 
And then I came full time in 2020. It looked like such a different business back mm. then from before. So um, a lot of my role has been making it more accessible, more efficient, um, you know, particularly digitally, because we've got mm. this whole other arm of telehealth, which weirdly enough has sort of existed for, you know, 30, 20 wow. years. Yeah, yeah wow. Never, never really used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I definitely think with the um, introduction of the MBS items, supporting this, I think it's definitely made it more accessible to so many more people, which is amazing, particularly in regional remote areas. Yeah. And there are some really awesome companies who are doing some spectacular work in this area to help provide care. Um, you know, I, I did a podcast episode on Vision Flex. Mm. Um, Mike Carmen, very passionate. Um, they, they reach into indigenous communities. They're, they're in Antarctica helping, you know, film okay. surgeries for people in, you know, the cities to um, instruct local doctors to help treat people. Um, That's and amazing. the prison system as well. That was so fascinating to me that he was, you know, really... F- in this area of treating yeah. inmates and um and then sylvia pfeiffer from coview she's you know doing an incredible job very much started out from i think originally they were doing speech pathology and mm. and wanted a platform specific for, for speech pathologists in in regional areas and then it just kind of grew into grew this yeah amazing yeah. platform that all health professionals could use so um yeah um I don't really know what my original point was because no. <laughs> <laughs> I get very passionate about startups I know, and no, 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 tech no. innovation. <laughs> um, you were just pretty much saying all the, the different telehealth options that are that are out there yeah. um, that are now being implemented across um, the healthcare space. Yeah. But I wanted to touch on um, the docs and call. You said that your role when you first started part-time ended up very different to, to whenever you went full-time in 2020. Yeah. So just to start off, what exactly was your role um part-time when you first started and what was kind of what was kind of the reason why you decided to go and work with um doctors and call yeah so um my role beforehand was sort of more outreach manager so just anything admin anything sort of i don't know um talking to if i had to go talk to a facility i'd go talk to them Kind of the liaison very, kind just of thing. whatever, yeah. yeah, you know. Um, bits and bobs. Bits and bobs, yeah. like, you know, it was just like a little bit of a side thing that yeah. I did to help <laughs> out. Um, and then 2020, couldn't do any more research. Kind of also needed some money to, you know, survive, mm-hmm. but also realised super passionate about um, the elderly and vulnerable people. And it kind of feeds back into my whole love of neuro and... Mm. Um, you know, you've got Alzheimer's and cognitive impairment and all these other different things that I think get a little bit sort of ignored. So I, I thought this is amazing. They're trying to, you know, create practical solutions, but I, I can see we can do this so much better. That was a struggle, doing a whole different patient management system. Oh, would be. I went through a really long phase of talking to so many different companies um, about their software solutions because... A lot of them are built for like either general practice where the patient traditionally comes in and yeah, yeah. and the doctor sits there typing while you're talking yeah. um, or they're built for a specialist, um, for example, in uh, cosmetics, yeah. you know, where it's kind of a little bit, the functionality is a bit different and, and you can um, integrate different features depending on what specialty that you're using. So for us, it was really important to us that it was mobile. So we, we couldn't. You know, for example, something as simple as having a server that was cloud-based was really important to us. Um, we also needed to have the ability to, to bill from that platform. We had to have the ability to do um, e-prescription so that it was um, more efficient for 
pharmacies to receive medications for patients so they yeah. didn't have a period of time where they were waiting for pain relief because that's another big part of aged care and particularly when you're dealing with vulnerable groups a lot of them have um, chronic pain and and you're inherently dealing with um, complex diseases all at the same time um, so a lot of my role was actually going into the pharmacies chatting with the pharmacist going hey what's your workflow look like how can we increase our efficiency how can we make sure that your um, program plugs into our program yeah. um, and then the medications go off so that the um, the patients aren't waiting um, yeah so that was another consideration another consideration we to have was um, the type of note-taking in in the actual program itself some of them had timers on them some of them had um, you know, non-compatibility with Windows or Apple. So, and I think eventually we went with, um, after speaking to so many different companies, eventually we did go with Medi Records. Um, even though it wasn't distinctly made for us, we were able to have workarounds. Like for example, the appointment book, um, it's assigned to individual patient profiles inside the patient management system. Mm. We just allocated our facilities or our locations to be um, patients so that we could book them in for a telehealth schedule so a doctor could look at it and go okay I've got my next person here at this location so it wasn't perfect but it was the best we could do yeah Yeah. exactly and I love many records because I feel like their team's super responsive to us it's cloud-based they've always been working with us you know on with feedback on you know how it's it's working in our practice Mm so um yeah it, it was good um, yeah, and then the next step after that was building out governance and policy around the way that this would be used because, um, you know, it's a new technology, training as well, training our clinicians on how this would be used in situ, which, again, was another challenge point because you're trying to talk to these amazing people who've studied for like 30 yeah. years. And you're trying to teach them something new. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's processes that are very linear in place for a really good reason, particularly in aged care, because people die all the time and you don't want it to be a mistake, you know. So you've got to make sure that you're sensitive to their expertise, but also like you're trying to teach them something new to help them. Yeah. And so there's always that initial, you know, push back and you've got to find a way to make it work and, and be respectful of you know their expertise so through that also we had challenge points even implementing um, telehealth so we had to find a good telehealth platform that would integrate with our many record system after that so we chose to go with CoView mm-hmm. um, and then that was amazing because again double encryption super secure no one could drop into the um, the consultation it's so important to have that confidentiality mm-hmm. and whilst we were doing this also um because it was so new there weren't a lot of guidelines around um what we were implementing so they hadn't quite finished writing the telehealth guidelines they'd sort of said okay you can do telehealth and here's some billing items but they hadn't actually finished writing the regulations around what that could look like how was um how was kind of navigating and creating all these new processes for doctors and call um during during covid during the whole pandemic because obviously <laughs> that's already sounds difficult enough yeah. as it is trying to, <laughs> trying to implement all these new processes within um an organization like doctors and call yeah. taking away the paper the facts yeah. going to email the tablets yeah. going to telehealth implementing um new software yeah um, across the business but then add in the fact that you probably weren't able to even travel that far outside yeah. of your suburb or even meet people in person. Mm. How, how, how was that for you, I guess, um, navigating all of that? Yeah, it was 
really tiring. Not gonna <laughs> lie. <laughs> yeah. I worked quite a lot. Um, probably seven days, like probably barely slept to yeah. be honest. And then sometimes even if I would go to bed, it'd be anxiety around just be like, oh, I've got so much to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. just wondering, like, you know, did I say the right thing or did I write the right thing down or. And, you know, I was getting really asked really quick, tricky questions as well. All of a sudden I became this, um, this governance person and I got, you know, even not just from my own team, but also from the people we were working with mm. um, in aged care, you know, ringing me up going, hey, we've got someone who's just died of COVID. How do we dispose of the body? Yeah. So then that would be like, okay, um, let me just get back to you. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll find out the answer for you. So again, a lot of the documentation was still being written by the government at the time. We were getting updates from the government and on the websites on and stuff. Basis, but, yeah. but there were all these different regulatory bodies that were coming into the aged care space in particular saying that this aged care facility has to do it in this way. And, and so it was very stressful also for, for, for the, our stakeholders, I suppose, mm. and, and the people that we were treating and, and the staff we had to work with um, because they were getting told all this conflicting information and, and things that weren't logical, um, like even the, where they should position their residents within their building. Um, you know, some of those generalized recommendations didn't really make sense. So some would say, oh, yeah, you've got to put them upstairs if they've got COVID. And then it's like, well, from a fire safety perspective, like there's nowhere to exit out of the building like safely. Like, do we leave everyone inside mm. if they're sick? Like, so there were all these um, interesting health ethical problems coming up in my day to day, which was useful because I definitely used my public health and health law training, yeah, training yeah, yes. but also crazy at the same time because we'd go through these little scenarios in health law about, you know, who gets the hospital bed? Is it the young person or is it the old, old person? person? Yeah. And then, what, what is the answer? Well, during COVID, it was interesting because a lot of our um, hospitals were unfortunately over capacity and mm -hmm. so they were sending back our elderly patients okay. and that put pressure on the aged care facilities to then become a hospital in the home kind of situation but then again that they don't have capacities like an IV for example to mm. put in, in, in an elderly person because there's a certain level of um, qualification you need for a certain person to go in and a nurse that's qualified and to, to do that or you know even where the oxygen tanks were stored um, if someone needed oxygen and you, you couldn't use nebulizers because all um, cause airborne particles could help you know spread COVID in a communal environment so it became really challenging to, to, um, to navigate that um, so we tried the best we could. A lot of I had a lot of meetings with our aged care facilities in particular, um, going through information that I'd found out or researched, answering questions as best as, as I could, um, talking to public health, talking to the local health network teams like the Grace team, which is sort of like the hospital outreach service in the eastern suburbs. And yeah. We also have a similar one in the, in the North Shore um, mostly. And then we also um, ended up getting a lot of... Um, yeah, just a lot of um, conflicting information. And then this punitive system also was established in HKIC, um, which is like a SEERS reporting system. Mm. So instead of um, instead of opening up a forum to, to discuss, you know, mistakes or something they do differently, it was this whole investigation that was opened up on individual people in aged care facilities going, oh, they did this wrong. And so... People were reluctant to report if something went wrong or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of what I ended up doing was writing documents to help them check off certain requirements um, that the AGS&C, you know, qualitative people for aged care that sort of help, say, 
Sorry. We've done this, we've done that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So they, they could come in and do a surprise inspection and, and look through everything and, and either say that they're, yeah. um, they've passed or they failed. Um, and so I was writing these you know, shortcut documents for them to tick off things because the, the nursing staff was so stressed and yeah. overstretched. Definitely and would have like built a level of comfortability for them knowing yeah. that, okay, if we do this, then we should be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the perspective that we took. We tried to be supportive. And I think through implementing and working with our stakeholders, that sort of spread around. And so in addition to sort of physically going out to aged care facilities to or just, you know, different locations say, hey, we're here, we can help you. We got a lot of referrals internally too to say these guys are great. Like yeah. we, they support us, we trust them. We did a lot of education and training. We ran sort of sessions around even vaccination delivery. A lot of people were unsure about what that looked like in aged care because we were the first cab off the rank. Um, we did a lot of um, infection control um I suppose training as well for the nurses donning and doffing a lot of the nursing staff also unfortunately left as well because it was very stressful from okay. a mental point of view so I tried to also work with some of the facility managers on how to better improve um, their mental health and gave them you know research and and tried to to provide you know documentation on practical tips and and all that sort of stuff and just even being there and, and listening to them about you know some of the struggles that they were going through or, yeah. or with work um so yeah, through that, I think um, we built a lot of rapport and, and, and established a lot of trust, which I'm really proud of in, in aged care, um, particularly being a young person coming into aged care. I think True. it's really easy to go, oh, boring, like, you know, don't want to do that. But you don't, you don't realise how much there is in there that needs, you know, or not needs, but could be done a little bit differently to help it be done more efficiently. Or, exactly. Yeah. Um. That's amazing. I think this is one of the reasons why we do this podcast is because yeah. we like to speak to people who have done different things and amazing things within healthcare, and especially when they've done and gone off the beaten track. Like you have your your degrees, your masters, but you probably when you were doing this, you never thought I'm going to end up in doctors and call as your general manager in the middle of a pandemic, trying to create new processes, trying to improve. Um, it, aged care facilities across New South Wales's um, experiences and and the I guess the people the, the the elderly that live there try and improve their lives like that probably was never the thought process. No. But just through your willingness to learn, um, your willingness to to see the world, your willingness to I guess help people who are underprivileged, it's kind of serendipitous that has fallen on your lap and you have obviously done an amazing job in, in improving the lives of, of many people across New South Wales. So I love that. I Aww, love that. Thank you. That's no, really nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sweet. No, but <laughs> At the time, amazing. it kind of doesn't really, you're not really thinking about yeah, it Yeah, you, like you don't think it because you're just, yeah. you're just on the ball yeah. trying to get things done. But when you do take a step back, it's like, when I've finished, you're, in your head, you're probably thinking, when I finished high school, this, like, I've never expected this. Nah. I was expecting to be on a hospital floor mm. in A&E. Yeah. Um, but now you're here and I can tell by the way you speak, you look so passionate about it, which is yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Which is what we need within the healthcare space. We need people who are passionate about helping people. So, yeah. Um, moving on from Doctors and Call, we've touched on this a couple of times about the commercial aspect mm. of of healthcare and, and understanding that as much as we are in this industry to help patients there is a level of commercializing and sales that goes into ensuring that 
um, we are actually able to provide the best service because you need a, you need money a lot of the times mm. for things to get done. Yes, you do. So can you can you give me a bit of an insight into what you think about that part? Where do you think I guess a lot of healthcare businesses and companies may potentially be falling short in that realm? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if I'm the expert on where they're falling short. Just give me what you but, think. But, uh, <laughs> Tell me what you think. <laughs> I'm still learning. I love learning, as you know. Um, but I think it sort of crossed my... Again, it's this idea that I'm a big believer. Like, you can work really hard, yes. But also luck comes into it and you kind of get just plopped into wherever you end up being. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of another one of those moments where um, I was fortunate enough to connect with... Rabab Nasrallah at Incubate at UCID um, through my brother actually who he works sort of in the entrepreneurial space because of my research in concussion because he was telling me that her sister works in concussion and she's incredible okay. she's this amazing researcher she works in Queen at Queensland University in the Brain Institute part of that and looks at biomarkers of concussion right now so she's doing an amazing job but connected with her and basically she started telling me about this whole world where um after I'd spoken to her what I'd done you know to try and get more money she was like that's amazing because we've got this massive gap particularly in Australia and it's the chasm of death where you're trying to get your research over this chasm into a commercial product that people can practically use and embrace in their day-to-day -day lives um and that's a really hard thing to do and I don't think Sometimes, again, this idea that researchers are amazing with coming up with these incredible innovations, but I don't know if there's infrastructure in Australia, and there, there kind of is, and it's getting better, but it's really hard to jump over that gap to mm -hmm. get the, the funding that is needed. Um, so, yeah, she said, you know, I'm doing this journal. Do you want to be part of the journal um, to really highlight this problem and look at all the startups in the Australian ecosystem that have either... Um, jumped over that gap and successfully secured funding and, and have made it to market both here and in the US. Um, and I said, would love to. So I came on as a writer at first mm -hmm. um, and I got to interview and write about this amazing company called Detected X who was looking at um, training radiologists in identifying breast cancer um, because they were finding that they were getting a lot of misdiagnoses or, or missing things and there was a gap in the tra in training tool. So... Um, that was incredible. And then they've actually, since COVID, they've actually branched out into other respiratory illnesses like COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah, they've done an awesome job. Um, so, yeah, I loved that. And then she said, okay, do you want to work with um, Fatima Nasrallah, who is her sister and is the one working on concussion, and um, edit with her um, on the next edition? So I was like, okay, yeah, I'd love to. So basically my job became finding really cool companies in Australia, reaching out, connecting, convincing them that would be a cool idea to come into our journal. Um, we had a little checklist that we made of certain criteria of what we wanted in the journal yeah. and four of us um, signed off on it. So um, we also work with an international journal team um, based out of Europe and the UK because um, nice. it's part of a Cambridge-Oxford University initiative okay. um, to highlight this problem over there as well. So, oh, so, so is that... 
does that seem to be kind of a problem in the UK and Europe as well? Less of a problem than okay. it is here. I feel like the US is probably the bench. I the feel best like, place. Yeah, they yes. probably have the commercialising yes. thing down to a T. They do, yeah. but I think it's very much because their health system is a bit different in the sense that it's a user pay system. Yeah. So patients expect to pay for their medical treatments. Whereas here, it's amazing. We're so lucky that we have Medicare and we've got subsidies from the government to pay for our medications and treatments. But I think that the mentality that results from that, from a patient-consumer perspective, is that they feel like they don't need to pay for medical technology or treatments. So it's a whole different market um, over in the US. And if you make it in the US market, you've basically made it, you know, as a as an innovator. Yeah, for sure. Your, your goal is Silicon Valley. You want to be there and you want to, you know, that's how you know you've succeeded. Um, and we've got some really cool examples of that, you know, like Canva is, I know is always held up as like the gold standard standard, example, but, um, yeah. So in Australia, we were looking at the ecosystem here, um, then decided on 12 sort of companies. Then I had to recruit, you know, 12 writers, train them on how we wanted the article to be written, they wrote the article, interviewed the company. It was a bit of back and forth. And then I edited it with um, Fatima. And mm. then we sort of sent it off to our international journal team to, to pull it all together on the website. So, nice. yeah, we that's like pretty much what's involved. But it sounds, it's quite time consuming. And I can only imagine. Yeah. Writing but, is just, yeah. yeah, it's a long process. Yeah. But with that, I was very lucky because I got to connect with a lot of cool people in, in the in the ecosystem. And even some of the people I didn't put in the journal um, ended up being amazing later for um, when I got approached to do the podcast. So mm. I could use them for the podcast instead. So that was good. I love that. <laughs> um, speaking of, I guess, building relationships in healthcare, you've been going through, I guess, the recruitment process here with us at HPG. Luckily, woo. Um, <laughs> and you've worked with a couple of our consultants while you've been doing that. Yeah. Um, how has the experience been for you? Because your your resume is very, it's not siloed in one direction. Yeah. It's kind of touches in different spots. So how has been the experience for you at HPG and I guess going through that process in terms of um, finding potential roles that you might be interested in? Mm. No, that's a really good question because um, HPG, HPG is very much different, I've noticed. Mm. I've spoken to a lot of um, recruiters, particularly over the phone, um, and they don't really know what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you saying this in the Zoom call. Yeah. I was just like, that's so funny. <laughs> They're kind of like, you're kind of all over the place. Yeah. So I was like, I know, I know. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... For me, I've never really committed, I suppose, to the traditional linear trajectory that exactly. is expected in healthcare. Um, and funnily enough, I think in Australia in general, people just want to fill boxes. The thing I was really grateful for was when I was working with HPG and particularly the consultants is mm. that they looked at me as a whole person and they were like, wow, this is amazing. Like you've got all these different amazing skills. I'm going to put forward this really left of field job that you've probably never even thought of, yes. but it's combining all these interest areas that you have, um, which I really appreciated because I it would never have been a role that I would have thought of in a million years. But then the more I think about it, the more I think that's actually perfect for me. Yeah. And it's something that I think I could really see myself doing, particularly bringing in a little bit of, um, I think being in Doctors on Call has set me up really well because I was able to sort of jump into a whole variety of different roles and so it gives me this um, 
this understanding of the way that a business works, but I think I'm really hungry to sort of get into another business now sure. and see the way that they operate too and learn more about that. And I'm really keen to get, you know, mentored um, yeah. at, a, at a maybe even a large organization that's, you know, doing something that's also positive for patients and empowering patients. And that's also going back to my passion with the podcast as well. The mm-hmm. whole reason why I started it is I realized when I was delivering education and training um, that people were finding health information in the weirdest of places and it was getting um, very inaccurate. Like I had mm-hmm. questions like, I don't want to put fetus in my body as part of a vaccine, which I can understand how they got there because you can use stem cells, embryonic stem cells to grow yeah. certain medications. But it's just this, like, this awareness, this that must have been a rabbit hole to get to that oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me the first resp- response on Google. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's seven pages deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that really is. I'm um, <laughs> sitting up late at night, like yeah. trying to scroll through oh, there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So um, I just became really passionate about um, empowering patients and, and people around making better choices around their health. And luckily enough, I was, you know, I've been put forward for roles that are very much about that and, yeah. and very much aligns with my values. Um, and my passion area of, of um, empowering people to make their own decisions. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I think we're becoming a more patient-centered healthcare environment anyway. Yes, we're moving away from that traditional um, fiduciary relationship between the doctor and the patient where the patient... No- it's just like another number kind of yeah, thing. It's a yeah. little bit more personalized now. Yeah. And it needs to be. Yeah, and yeah. patients are asking more questions of doctors, which I think is amazing. And and doctors are also finding themselves providing virtual care, which is requiring more of them anyway in a more individual approach and delivering medical solutions. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's amazing. Um, very lucky. But yeah, back to HPG. I think what I really appreciated is that I was seen as the whole person. I think mm. a lot of the time I go, oh, here's everything of me. Like, what can you do with it? Yeah. Whereas other recruiters were kind of like, you know, you're not... We haven't got anything right now exactly. that we can put you in. Yeah, because they're looking for a very specific linear yeah. person. Yeah. Um, I got... One of the feedback I got was like, I lack focus, which Ooh. is interesting because... Um, not from you guys, but from yeah. another recruiter, which is interesting because there's not really much I can do about that yeah. because I feel do like because <laughs> I mean based on your time of doctors and calls throughout the pandemic I feel like a lot of focus was definitely need to, yeah, to do all that yeah yeah, yeah 100% hmm. so weird and I feel yeah. like you need a lot of focus to sit down and study for hours on end oh for sure I'm like well. you've got you've got a few degrees there <laughs> <laughs> I struggled for my first bachelor just to focus so uh, I can't imagine everything yeah. post that so yeah interesting but one of yeah I, I think that's such a good point that you've made about our consultants when it came to them looking for a role for you because I think one thing we do here at HPG because we are purely specialized in healthcare like you said we look at the whole picture of the candidate that comes to us we don't we don't see your your experience as general manager doctors and call and think oh where can we put her yeah but then we're like okay well she's been an editor for a journal she's been doing some doctors and call then obviously they do the call with you in zoom and get way more information they're like okay yeah. She's actually done way more than her resume would does say. Mm. Let's try and go a little bit left field here and just see what see what you think about this. Yeah. And then like every other experience you've had so far, it wasn't really planned. It wasn't kind of at the forefront of your yeah. mind. Like, oh, I'm going to do Docs and Call. I'm going to be an editor for a journal. I'm going to start a podcast. That was never kind of the thought process. It mm. kind of just came. happened and it came yeah. through 
the way you've built your relationships through the experiences you've had and through, I guess, all the, the degrees and that you've studied. Yeah. So again, a lot of the times that's how life works, isn't it? You kind of things just fall on your feet and you, you kind of just assess it whether it's the best thing for you and you go with it and see what happens. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And I think also... Um, yeah, you can never really plan out what you're going to do. Like you mentioned before, if you were to think about it leaving school, mm. I never would have put myself in this position. I never yeah. would have thought, oh, yeah, like listeners going to... Same in. with me just even living in Australia. Yeah, I never, right. Random. Was, yeah, just very random. Yeah, 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 random stuff. And you look back at the time and it can be frustrating when you're going through it because I'm the type of person that's a bit type A and needs like, you know, I need to know my next steps. Yeah. But for the first time, I think I've sort of let go of that and gone, okay, I'm just going to be open, see what comes my way. Um hoping that someone will see something that they can, you know, find valuable mm. for me to be involved in. And I've got a lot of value to bring. And I think um, particularly in that commercial space, I'm really interested to get more into that because I think there's this, this is hesitancy to, to be commercially minded in healthcare. Yeah. Um, um, but you need to be because a lot of the time, unless the research gets the funding, you're not going to make it to the shelves. Yeah. You're not going to ultimately impact people's lives and change pa the way that patients are treated or seen um, in healthcare. Um, so part of me, I think, you know, for the podcast, for example, it was like, okay, I have this amazing, you know, drive to want to change the way that people tell stories around technology because we're not looking at the patients. We're not looking at how um, doctors are implementing it in their practice, but how can I do that? Okay, I need some funding. Yeah. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to pitch this idea to all these different organizations and see whose values align with mine and who can see things the way that I see it. And, and a lot of the time when you put yourself out there, you find that people do genuinely want to help you, exactly. which is amazing. Um, but you, also you need to have those statistics. Like you need to, yeah, you know, so you know your stuff. Yeah. Like to, which I didn't, by the way, like I had no <laughs> example of like how it's going to turn out. It was just lucky it turned out the yeah, way that it yeah. did. Um, but yeah, I was really lucky because I had an organization who believed in me and believed in what I could do. And I'm also a big believer of picking up the phone or mm. I'm a big believer of like putting myself in front of someone because I think when you put a resume in front of someone, it's really hard in two pages to explain your explain whole personality yeah. and explain, you know, the way that you do things, the way that you go about things. And I think um, I appreciate that about HPG. I, I was like horrified to learn that people use AI. I mean, I love AI, but yeah. I was horrified to, to learn that that's what they use to go through people's CVs oh, to yeah. place people for that's a job. The, that's the thing, yeah. It's a, it's a lot more... Um, use in larger larger companies and mm. larger um, recruitment companies mm. because they probably just get thousands a day yeah so they pretty much use ai as a means of picking out keywords mm. so i think you have to be maybe 75 percent match with the job description yeah in order for you to even be seen a lot of the times yeah which is crazy yeah it's that crazy your cv needs to be so specifically like written written that's for what it each is. each individual um job post or yeah. else if the company is using ai they're probably not going to see it yeah i also want to touch on i guess you mentioned about the, the commercializing um yeah. within healthcare um you kind of touched on an example before we started recording, we started recording Isn't that the way? which i find really interesting because yes. um like like we were saying before we started recording it's almost if something doesn't directly affect you as a person mm. human nature is that you're probably never never going to think about it so yes. you touched on the fact that a lot of these key decision makers in these executive jobs are men so yes. there's going to be so many um 
situations or um, things within healthcare that are to do with women that men are never going to think, oh, should we should we invest in this company whose main aim is to, I guess, create a vaccine for um, cervical cancer or something like that. That's yeah. never going to be a thought process. Yeah. Um, and you kind of touched on, was it condoms, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, no, I was just, um, yeah, so this idea that you don't want to come across as salesy mm. in healthcare because it's, you know, bad and people get very funny about it. There is an element, though, of sales and having to be strategic and commercially minded in, particularly when you're growing a business or you're scaling something up. Um, that's something, you know, you have to be congruent with and, and genuine about because people can sense that straight away mm-hmm. and they won't and invest in you or they won't want to form those relationships because it's so clear. But if you genuinely are passionate about something, more likely to get that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess what I was sort of, lamenting on with you is this idea that um when you have a a a startup say looking at um yeah condoms the way that we've done condoms or um you know endometriosis even like there's not a lot on that in the space probably a a female um Mm -hmm. entrepreneur trying to raise money a lot of the time it's males in those key decision um you know signing those checkbooks on to whether they get funding or not um, and I was, it's really interesting to learn because 15%, I think there's only 15% of women in VCs versus, you know, the rest, which are men. Um, and just through no fault of their own, they're, they're probably going to sit there and not really have the expertise, think, yeah. understanding or think, oh, like, you know, menstrual pain is really intense for women. Like we should, you know, Look invest into in this. Can do. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And of course they do their due diligence and everything, but also it's just part of human na- nature to more strongly, I guess, empathize with something that they can relate to, um, you know. And I think there's also this research about how male investors tend to ask more challenging questions about the risks to female entrepreneurs who are traditionally going into femtech, for example, yeah. versus, um, you know, successful, you know, how successful is my investment going to be to male entrepreneurs? Um, yeah, and I use the idea of condoms because I think it's really interesting because it hasn't been reinvented or redone for a very long time um and there actually is a is a company um looking at this but um yeah like primary consumers in certain age brackets are females so all of our marketing should actually theoretically being targeted towards women to buy these condoms except they're not they're targeted towards those more masculine things for men yeah um and even the way that we produce condoms it could be so much more environmentally sustainable a lot of the um processes that we use um causes a lot of excess water and, and energy that we don't need to be spending. Even um, the materials don't degrade properly in the environment. So we really could be looking at how we could do, do this better. Um, but yeah, I think it's about jumping across that gap um, and being commercially minded. So if you are, if you do have a problem that you're really passionate about and you want to solve in business, you need to be aware of, of the mental space of some of these key decision makers and approach it accordingly in, in a way that they'll understand and they'll, they'll want to help and they'll want to invest and they'll want to empathize with you because at the end of the day, men don't have uteruses. No. I mean, <laughs> I mean, cis, you know, traditional men, I don't yeah. want to get caught up in the t- terminology here, but <laughs> like they don't have uteruses so they can't... Um, you can never really understand. Yeah, yeah, what women go through and, and um, you know, I think I was reading the other day, one in nine women in Australia 
suffer from endometriosis, for example. Did not know that. And yeah, so it's quite a common thing. And 50% of the population, if you think about it, you know, menstruate. But it's something that there's not a lot happening in tech right now. And I think there's a real hesitancy to invest in this space because it's so new. You know, we've only been including women, women in clinical trials since like, I don't know, the 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I actually have a statistic on that that it. I wanted to <laughs> share with you. Talk to me. Because um, it's quite fascinating. Um, so I'm just waiting for my phone to load. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for this uh, statistics. Yeah, I'm all be, about them. Yeah, it's going to be a big build up now. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's actually not yeah, that good. Like, it's not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so yeah, so there was this question that was raised that I read about. This idea that why does a symptom affecting 19% of men get five times more funding than a symptom affecting 90% of women? Okay. So yeah, that's to do with erectile dysfunction, 19% of men. What? And 90% of women, the statistics referring to um, menstrual related issues. So like pain and um, all those types of things. And we're only just getting, you know, the Vic- know that. yeah. So we're only just getting Victorian government to supply free pads and tampons in public schools. Most recently, the budget got released. They've allocated fifty nine million dollars to um, endometriosis under the Women's Health Strategy twenty twenty to twenty thirty. But if you figure out over ten years, that's five point nine million dollars per year, and then you divide that by the number of women who suffer from endo, yeah. um, that's like $4.08 for their that, treatment per year. That much. No, it's not that much to help <laughs> actually, them. Actually, it's not anything at yeah. all. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, so it sounds amazing and it sounds really good, but there's, I just think there are so many gaps, um, particularly in the healthcare space. And unfortunately, there is this, um, you know, not just women, also, um, you know, what about people with disability? Um, what, what's happening for them and their sexuality? You know, how mm. are they... How are they exploring that, and and what what um, devices are available to to assist them with that, or um, even you know trans people and and binding like mm. you know they could really help hurt themselves if they do it the wrong way. You know, where's the information on that? Where's the um, investment in, in these populations of people that are very much part of our modern day, um, and particularly in health as well? And I think that's what's kind of missing at the moment. And I think that you is- have to be commercially minded yeah. to realize this because <laughs> again like we said if, if it doesn't really affect like i would never think that yeah on a day-to-day and again it goes to the fact that yeah if it doesn't affect you it really isn't at the forefront of your mind yeah. which is which is a horrible thing but again human nature is yeah that's just the way we are but like you said it's that's why it's so important to yeah i guess commercialize healthcare to a point where this does become at the forefront of many um, venture capitalist minds, yeah. many C-suite executive minds, because that's the only way that these things will get pushed forward. Mm. Um, and I'm definitely not anti-men or anything like that. No, it's not just at all. More, it didn't come across that way, good. don't worry. <laughs> no, it's just more we have to work together like, mm-hmm. and we have to understand that um, men are just as much part of these conversations as women mm. are as well. And so if we can, if we can formulate pictures or, or arguments or present statistics that are relevant to help understand that like you're never gonna know what someone else is going through unless you're exposed to it um you know it's just that basic principle (laughs) um what are your hopes for the future of healthcare (sighs) this is such a big question i feel like we've covered loads that could be your hope for the future (laughs) in this podcast but have you got something specific um that you'd like to see moving Um, forward 
See, I feel like I don't really have all the answers. I still have so much yeah. more to learn. I just have to take a take a sip. sip. <laughs> I get very overexcited when I'm talking <laughs> about this, so it all just gets a I'm bit dry. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, definitely, I think that we need. Okay, so first of all, aged care. There's definitely more we could be doing in the mm. aged care space to support our elderly, but also to support the staff in the aged care space. I think there should be more incentives around wanting to motivate people to work in aged care. I do think that they need to be paid a lot more than what they're currently paid. Mm. Um, and also mental health is just basically, we could be doing better. We could be sending in, you know, psychologists to help support the staff in, mm. in managing what they're doing. That they, they, they deal with everything, you know. Imagine having to look after a whole um, home of people, a whole bunch of strangers, where you walk into a supermarket and go, hey, you, 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 come home and let's all live together. Now let's deal with all the, like, behavioural and Issues, yeah. health problems that you've got going on. I don't, you know, and put that all together. Um you know, that's, but that's hard. That's challenging and they are trained, but I, I certainly think with the current climate and health, yeah, it's it been really be challenging. Done. Yeah. And could be more done. I think it definitely shouldn't be a punitive system where we make them an example. Like this may be controversial, but um, the inquiry they did into aged care, it was very much sort of down on the staff that work in aged care. And I just don't, and yes, there is maybe a certain level of elderly abuse that happens, mm. but I think that was really sensationalised by the media a lot. And I think that there are a lot of good people trying to just do their best and they do need more support. Yeah. Um, and I think more young people should be engaged and involved and aware of that because these are people that have lived their lives, paid their taxes, like built our society. Yes, they've probably made mistakes in climate and all that sort of stuff. But um, we all. Yeah, we've yeah. all done stuff, you know, um, but they do deserve like more more and and better healthcare and better access to healthcare and I think that's what's kind of really lacking and we're, we're kind of getting there with telehealth and the MBS items but again restrictions came back in most recently in the last couple of months which meant that a lot of the GPs that were seeing residents in their homes um, over telehealth they could no longer do that anymore oh, yeah because yeah because um I mean first of all it's really hard to if you make the, if you work in a general GP practice where you sit down and you see patients, there are some that decide, okay, I'm going to go between this hour and this hour to see these patients. Um, it's a lot for them. Like they have to get in their car, drive there, see them, and then get back in their car, the drive back. It's yeah. just not really worth it for them. So telehealth was a way that um, elderly people could get access to these GPs. Um, without them having to have too much of a disruption to their day so they could still seeing their regular patients as well. So some of these items, particularly in re regional and remote areas, means that people can't um, access that anymore. Mm. Um, so I'm really hoping, yeah. Um, and then I think there's a whole other area in women's health, trans people, like disability, yeah. more funding needs to go into the research to help. There's some amazing commercial products that are trying to go onto market that just don't have the investment yet because I think people are a little bit tentative about investing in these products because it's a new market. But I think if you really look at it, it's not a new market. They're very much a part and of our yeah. society for ages. Um, you know, like Bumpin's an amazing one. She's come up with a vibrator for um, people with a disability. 
um, to be able to, you know, self-pleasure. And so that helps them get their own sense of identity and sense of independence where they may not necessarily have independence on other areas of their life. People like that um, who are really passionate about that need funding to to help their um, medical devices move forward. Unimon um, Technologies, they're trying to um, develop a more... uh, environmentally sustainable condom and they're also it's a a non-latex condom Mm. using biopolymers which is so amazing and 3d printing and their whole thing is that their whole manufacturing process is done in a shipping container that could literally be transported and dropped in the middle of anywhere so you could basically move it and drop it in the middle of an indigenous community that's insane yeah so they can have access to to you know protection protection yeah um and endometriosis as well. I, I touched on. Um, there's so much more that we could be doing for women um, in this space and the pain that they go through. Like women who pass out or vomit or can't go about their day-to-day lives because there's basically no. They don't even know. It's seven years before they're diagnosed mm. with endometriosis, and then the, the, the intervention is surgery. Like we we could be doing better with that. Um, so I get. I guess I have hopes in all of these different areas <laughs> that more is being done off the top of my head. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then just to finish off, could you give us three tips for someone who, I guess, is entering the, the healthcare industry and may want to go down the, I guess, the non-beaten track, kind of similar to what, you, what you've done? Do you have any tips for someone like that? Yeah. Um, I think thinking outside the box... I always hate when people say that because I'm like, what does that even mean? (laughs) But I think a lot of where I've found the most joy in what I've done is where I've seen a problem and then tried to come up with a super creative solution to solve that problem. So it could be something as simple as when during the pandemic, a lot of the staff were anxious about not receiving their PPE on time. So we were like, okay, let's do what we can. Let's try and make face shields and we'll drop them off at midnight so that they can have them for the next day. They can feel happy and comfortable and we made, you know, hundreds of face shields, you know, just using a at-home laminator mm. and like, you know, an elastic or whatever. So even something as small scale as simple as that, that really had a lot of impact on the on, on the staff and, and made them feel good. And um, so I guess, yeah, being creative, thinking about ways of solving problems um, in that way. I think being open, staying open, um, not Seems having... To be one of the main ones. Being open-minded. Yes. Yeah. Staying open, um, particularly to opportunities. Like I never thought I would find myself on a podcast um, <laughs> with you. <laughs> I never thought I'd find myself on a podcast with listener. But, um, you know, someone, you know, you and, you know, amazing Kim Norman who worked at listener, she saw something in me and was yeah. like, you know, do you think you'd ever want to do this? And instead of saying, oh, God, I'm so nervous. Like, I don't know if I can. Like, yes, let's see what happens. Yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah let's see what goes on. Literally. Yeah, um, so saying yes, but not to the point where you're, um, you Always know, ignoring yourself too much. Exactly, because yeah. that's something I've also learned to be more aware of my boundaries around my limitations of like, oh, my physical and cognitive energies. It's, yeah. you know, I'm more aware of that now. And I think also something that is important is you're the product of the five people that you surround yourself with. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. yeah so that's something I think about a lot yeah. because um, I try and surround myself with other women and other amazing mentors and people um, who are just as passionate about healthcare, just as driven as I try to be because I model myself off of their, you know, what they're doing. Exactly. Um, so one of my amazing friends... For example, she came from Lebanon in the midst of war, got a scholarship, studied medicine. Now she's 
over um, over in the US at Penn, um, at Duke University Hospital, training in cardiology. Nice. And she just, you know, overcame all these barriers. And now she's this amazing researcher and is trained to be a surgeon. Another one of my friends. Um, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know why I thought of that specific example. No, but no, just, that's, good. that's a good example. But it's good because... Um, it just keeps you focused and you think like if people like that can do that, then I can do can, yeah. what I'm doing, you know? Um, and also everyone's your mentor. So that's another thing that I like to live always by. Learning. Always learning, always asking people a million questions, being genuinely interested in how they got to where they got to. Um, that's something that I've always tried to, um, not tried, but just come naturally to, to understand that. I think that works well. And, and also, like I mentioned before, if you tell someone that you're passionate about something or you want to do something, they're, they're quite receptive and they're more likely to help you. Mm-hmm. And they're most willing to help you too. So, yeah, I don't know if that's three, but maybe it's more than that. that maybe four. Good. <laughs> and thank you very much. That was, a, that was an amazing podcast. If you're still listening up until this point, <laughs> um, I'm sure you're very motivated and inspired by everything <laughs> Zoe has said all the work that she's done with Docs and Call. She's an editor with a journal. She has her own podcast as well. All these things that, like she said, she said yes to and been open to the opportunities of doing something completely left field and outside of her the realm of what she thought she was going to be doing with with her life um, is something to really really admire um, and again Zoe thank you very much for sitting down with us today and um, I hope you've had a good time chatting it's been fantastic thank you so much for having me appreciate it you're welcome <laughs>